Amen. Please be seated. And please turn to your insert. The scripture passages for today's sermon are there, uh, found there, and there are several. I will read the first three. We are taking our cue from Matthew's Gospel for this Advent sermon series. We're in the second week, and we are looking at the titles or designations that are found in the first two chapters of Matthew's account of Christ's birth. Um, The first was the personal name of Christ, Jesus. That's where we spent our time last week. And then today we consider this designation, Emmanuel, the ancient prophecy connected to what is confirmed by the angel to to Matthew. uh, To be Emmanuel, what it means, the designation, the title itself. And then, Lord willing, week three, we'll consider what King of the Jews means. And then week four, what the Son of God means. These are all titles or designations ascribed to Christ in those first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll refer to that passage as one of the passages that I read. You'll notice that the passage I begin with is from Isaiah. This is a book that was written, as you know, hopefully remember, 700 years before the events ultimately came to pass. There was certainly some immediate fulfillment, but it was meant to sow the seed prophetically of the Messiah who would come and give ultimate deliverance to God's people. Remember, as I read, this is God's Word. This is not just the Word of man. This is breathed out by God, by His Spirit, using human authors to pen His will. Exactly. So we can trust it. It's completely trustworthy. It's free from error. Um, The issue is we need God's help in understanding His Word, and so we'll ask Him for that help after I read. But do remember that we're reading the Word of God. So please hear now. I'll read the first three passages that are listed on your insert. First, Isaiah 7.14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Later in Isaiah 8, in the passage that is next, starting in verse 8, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you people, and be be shattered. Give ear for all you far countries." Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. Matthew 1, 21 to verse 23. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill What the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are a people in need of your presence. We are a people who need you to be with us. And we give you praise for coming to us. And Lord Jesus, you are our Savior and our friend. You are our Redeemer and our guide. Please cure any sense of loneliness that we may have or any idea that we're somehow left on this earth and in this life alone. You are with us. I pray for your Spirit's aid in understanding and applying your word this day, and I pray pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you probably know, the various cultures of earth have various concepts many concepts of God. Creation itself bears witness to a creator, so it 
stands to reason that people groups over the millennia have a notion of deity. Since the fall of man, our ability to discern God rightly has been lost. We need God to reveal himself for us to know anything right about him. And where that revelation is not known or people have not understood it, all manner of concepts come up about God. Western concepts of God tend to be more historic with prophets speaking on behalf of the God they say they represent, uh, revealing things about God. But God isn't that personal when you really analyze even that view. Eastern views, which we're less familiar with, tend to be more polytheistic, more that God is a pervasive spirit or multiple gods. Um, kind of the force idea in Star Wars is based on an Eastern concept of God, this, this impersonal force. Again, disinterested a bit, impersonal, detached, certainly not close to people. Eastern or Western concepts, both can tend to feel a bit detached. In fact, um, that is what the subject of a book is about, talking about the Western view of Christianity or the Western expression of Christianity. I don't mean necessarily true Christianity, but people that would identify themselves as Christian have different views of God even within that umbrella. There was a book called America's Four Gods. Uh, Authors Fries and Bader, uh, they take the Christian concept of God And then they break it down into four general conceptions that they see Americans hold. These concepts. First, the authoritative God. God is involved in everyday life. Um, Kind of the father over a family with clear expectations, judging and passing out benefits and punishments in this life. Then there's the benevolent God. God is involved in everyday life. A kind and helpful being who suffers with people and provides help in times of need. That's closer to what we'd say the biblical conception is. Not full, but closer. He then notices also two other kinds of God, views of God that I think a lot of people have. The critical God, a God who is distant, but will punish those who are sinful in the next life. Or the distant God, a God who set the world in motion, but largely stays out of people's affairs. I don't know what your personal experience was, but I know for me, went to a church, a large institutional church, um, but I was scared of God. I thought of him as the critical and distant God, kind of a mixture of those two. Certainly not personal, didn't care about me personally, only that I was a sinner and that I was in trouble. I knew that much was true. I knew he had the right to be angry with me. I never thought that he had any calling or any kind of commitment or need to save me and be personal with me. I remember constantly striving through religious rites and rituals to feel like I was accepted by God or close to God, or at least he wouldn't punish me. But a personal God, a father God who loves me unconditionally or through the conditions met by someone else, I didn't get that. That didn't make sense to me. It wasn't until I became a believer that I started to recognize. When I rested in Christ, through Christ, I recognized my position with God is in Christ, and it's close, and it's personal. God with us. And this name, Emmanuel, speaks deeply into what Jesus has done. We'll only scratch the surface of it today, looking at a few elements or aspects about God with us. But it's base level, it's very personal, and it means we're not alone, and God does care for us very closely and carefully in every day through Christ, Christ being the key. Then I read a book early into my Christian walk by J.I. Packer, Knowing God. I didn't understand a lot of what I read the first time I read it, but there are certain things that really grabbed me. He said in that book, 
The conviction behind the book is that ignorance of God, ignorance both of his ways and of the practice of communion with him, lies at the root of much of the church's weakness today. Now, that was certainly true for me personally. My weakness in my faith or in trust in Christ or in Christianity in general uh, was largely based on misunderstandings about who God is. He goes on, The ignorance of God has contributed to two negative trends in the church. See if these are true for you or for us. First, this ignorance about God. Christians have been unduly influenced by modern ideas about God which views him as distant, small, and completely unknowable. Because of our ignorance about God, popular ideas or made-up ideas about God creep in. The other thing, a second trend is that Christians have become confused as a result of their dealings with modern skepticism. Lacking a strong biblical understanding of God, believers have become less certain about both God and his word. The truth of Scripture is routinely questioned. And even the very concept of truth is itself been put up for debate. The title identified in Matthew, Emmanuel, disproves mistaken ideas about God in ways that we need that correction. We need that clarity, that intimacy that we have with God through Christ. God with us is critical for our stability, for our understanding, for our standing up against opposition that comes, even from within. Our feelings tell us we're alone a lot. Our feelings tell us God doesn't care. And it's not to discount feelings, but you cannot trust them. They have to be washed in the water of the word to start to be righted. Um, It will always be a challenge for us, this side of glory with our feelings. They're God-given, but they have to be driven by truth. And as it relates to loneliness or feeling alone or that God is distant or doesn't care, We have to have Scripture's input on this. We have to see clearly who God is, how he relates to us. Emmanuel means God with us, and that meaning is profound. It's deep and it's practical. It means that the God of the universe has identified with us. He has identified with you, and that's very distinct from any other religion, any other philosophy or faith, that the God of the universe is not disinterested, but so personally interested that he sends his son, God the Son, to be with us, to pay for our sins, and to guide us and direct us, to never leave us or forsake us. Let's consider, at least in three ways, how Emmanuel, God with us, profoundly impacts us personally and should really shape the way we view this life. First, Emmanuel means God with us through Christ, very simply. God came to relate with us. He came to be close to us. And the major prophecy about the virgin birth of Christ and what Emmanuel means comes from Isaiah 7, as you have seen. Isaiah 7, 14. It's there on your insert. Look there with me. Therefore the Lord Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now I have great faith that you are people of great recall And it's only been a couple years since we studied Isaiah 7 in depth. I'll give you a bit of the background and you'll remember pretty quickly, I'm sure. The immediate background for Isaiah 7 was a particular situation in Israel. You remember that the Israel was divided into the north called Israel and the south called Judah. By this time in Isaiah's prophetic career, the northern kingdom had forsaken God 
and had joined up with the Assyrians, more or less to save themselves from complete subjugation, which didn't work, by the way. But King Pekah of the northern kingdom lined up with the Assyrian king, and they were threatening to take over Judah. And King Ahaz was scared. He thought he was next. So he's weighing, should I just give up on God and his covenant promises to preserve a people from which the Messiah would come? Should I just align with Assyria in the northern kingdom and escape this judgment that they're going to bring upon me? Or should I trust in God that he will preserve us? And so this is the context for Isaiah 7. In the verses just before 7.14, listen to what the prophet says. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, test God. The Lord says to Ahaz, the king, test me. See if I'll keep my covenant promises. Ahaz, who's feeling this weight from the prophetic word that's God's word, he says, I will not ask, the king says this, I will not put the Lord to the test. See, the the Lord knew he was questioning God, and he was thinking about allying with the Assyrians. So God said, test me, Ahaz, through the prophet. And Ahaz says, I wouldn't test God. The fact was, Ahaz was doubting. When he says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test, In his heart, he did not believe that God would preserve Judah. Verse 13, God responds, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? God knew he was lying and he didn't believe. And he found, you might say, their lack of faith very disturbing. In fact, he recognized that the people's disbelief in the covenant promises uh, were starting to wear humanly anthropomorphic, talking in a way that's just for us to understand, it was wearying God that they kept disbelieving, yet he kept showing himself faithful over and over and over again. But nevertheless, after saying or speaking to this weariness, he then says, therefore, in light of this, therefore, the Lord himself, God himself, not because they did something to deserve this faithfulness from God, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we have in this passage an immediate statement and promise. It wasn't only connected to what would come in 700 years. That was the ultimate purpose of the text, we find out later through the angel who spoke in Matthew. But at that time, there was some immediate fulfillment. The particulars of it are kind of lost to us. But what we have here is an example of an immediate word in the context of it's being given to a particular king at a particular time, yet it's a promise that is meant to symbolize something greater that will come, that we find out about when we come to Matthew. Ahaz is promised deliverance from Assyria. Ahaz is promised something far more ultimate for the people of Judah and beyond, though, something he doesn't yet grasp, that God's going to bring deliverance from, from their sins. One promise would have immediate fulfillment, and the other one was yet still to come. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So God is going to himself come to them and bring this deliverance. That's what Emmanuel means. Now, maybe Ahaz is thinking, well, this special child that will come in their time and place, that person just has God with them, and so therefore God will be with us. Maybe that's what he thought. We find out that's not what's meant. It's meant literally that God will come, take on flesh to be with us. He will identify with us. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name 
Emmanuel, which means Emmanuel, God with us. This long view into the future is finally realized 700 years later when we read in the opening verses of Matthew, telling Joseph, first of all, in verse 20, the angel of the Lord appeared to him saying, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Now notice he says, Joseph, son of David. That's a covenantal connection. That is bringing Joseph into an understanding of what is being spoken of here. This is on a big level, covenant promise keeping. This, this is all about redemption coming now, Joseph. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He knows that Mary is a virgin. He knows he's going to have to father this child, be the father to the child. This is not just any child. Verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Uh, it doesn't mean just ethnic Jews. We come to learn it means those who are trusting in him, his people, he's identifying with them. Emmanuel is coming. His people, he is one of us, is what is being promised to Joseph. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, yet born of this woman, he's going to save his people from their sins. And then verse 23, 22 leading into 23, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Joseph's a good Jewish learner. He knows what prophet said this. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. This is Mary. And, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us is through Christ. And that's what's displayed here in these verses in Matthew to begin with, connecting back 700 years. It's always through Christ that God is with us. In the Old Testament, there were symbols of God being with his people. You remember the pillar in the cloud, the the tabernacle, the temple itself. God with us. It spoke to the nations. This temple says our God is with us. Your gods are distant. You don't know them personally. Our God tends to us personally. But all those things were just shadows of Christ himself who replaces all of them and is much better than all of them. Calvin captures it wonderfully about the presence of God. It's always through Christ that salvation is mediated in the Old Testament and in the New. Calvin wrote, whenever God assisted his ancient people, he at the same time reconciled them to himself through Christ. And accordingly, whenever famine, pestilence, and war are mentioned, in order to hold out a hope of deliverance, he places the Messiah before their eyes. For what did the deliverance of Jerusalem depend but on the manifestation of Christ. This was indeed the only foundation on which the salvation of the church has always rested. So the picture in Isaiah 7 of an immediate deliverance was a greater deliverance to come from the Messiah. In Matthew 1, we have that fulfillment. And in our knowledge, we know that God has come. God the Son has come. Christ is God with us. And this is proven by what's revealed here in Matthew and in other places. You know, when Jesus is speaking to Thomas, who's doubting and wondering, what are you going to do? You're going to leave us now physically? He was going to ascend. What does this mean? He's going to go to the cross and he's going to ascend. And Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. So Jesus with us is God with us. From now on, You do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? 
God with us, Christ. This is the difference between Christianity and everything else. Our God has come to us. He is with us. He's not only with us to identify with us in this basic general way, but for a specific purpose too. He identifies with us so that he can be our atonement, that he can pay for our sins. God with us means that he came to take on our nature so that he might be the payment in our nature for our sins. God with us, related to the payment for salvation, means he identified with us to be our representative, to be our substitute. Remember, there was the first Adam who we're all under. He sinned, and we're in that same sin. For us to be forgiven, a second Adam must come in our nature. Jesus comes, takes on flesh, becomes the second Adam, and you are in him if you trust in him and his finished work. He represents us. He is with God with us to atone for us. That's the deeper level of God with us that's so crucial to our stability and our security. Only God could pull off such a thing, if you think about it. And we could only know this if it were revealed to us by his word. No one could conjure this plan. What religion or philosophy would ever say the great God of the universe would stoop down to take on our nature so that he could pay for our sins? Sure, it doesn't, sound, it doesn't make any sense but it makes total reasonable sense when you think about what God's heart is towards redemption and his glory provided that salvation to his people. It only makes sense, though, by the scriptures, by what's evidenced to us, and then we know it to be true. We know by the testimony of the Holy Spirit there is no salvation outside of God saving us, and he has to save us completely. He has to do the work of salvation for us because we cannot conjure it. No amount of our working toward it would ever earn God coming to pay for our sins. He did it by his grace. God with us for our atonement. That's what it means. That's part of what it means anyways. It means so much more even. In Hebrews, it's probably the best book to bring this identification together. The author of Hebrews is connecting all the Old Testament pictures of God with us, God to provide salvation for us, and then connects all the dots for us. In Hebrews 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. You see, to identify with us, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The first Adam is slave to the devil, falls to the devil in the garden. The second Adam is victorious over the devil. We have to be in the second Adam. God with us, with him means we're in the second Adam. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Beautifully laid out in Hebrews is exactly what Christ does. God with us to pay for our sins. Yes, he's with us to identify with us, to communicate with us, to feel what we feel. But he is also in our nature too, so that he can pay for our sins. God with us is a large part about identification with us so that he could atone for our sins. Later in Hebrews 4, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, it says, I know that's a common feeling we have that God doesn't understand what I'm going through. 
or other people don't understand, it's not exactly the same. And that may be true, but God does. In every respect, he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4 goes on, verse 16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. The closeness of God to us through Christ means we could go immediately to the throne of God and he'll never turn us away. I know our concept of God can be formed with maybe our relationship with our father or with some other authority figure who we had to have permission to go speak to or we wouldn't dare speak to on certain occasions. That is never the case with God. Because of Christ who is in his presence, seated at his right hand, and you are in Christ, you can always go to God. We tell children, you could talk to God anytime you want, say anything you want to him. Well, guess what? It's the same for adults. You could do the same thing. And you shouldn't be fearful about what you say might be wrong. You shouldn't worry about whether God will put you off or not. He won't. He'll take you because of Christ with us. In Christ, we have immediacy before the throne of grace. When the temple veil tore in two at Christ's death, that was also symbolic of our openness to go into the Holy of Holies and talk to God. Uh, God with us is, is not just a, a fluffy, superficial, romanticized, sentimental thing. It means that you have access to the power of the universe, God himself, through Christ, who is God the Son, with us. And he's paid for our sins. The same God has paid the price that we could not pay. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you go to the throne of God's grace through Christ, you will receive mercy. And you and I, we need mercy. So go to the throne of grace, God with us. In Christ, we can have this access. We have this access. This gives us confidence that we can stand before God. For me personally, this was a huge revelation. As I was always... Uh, made to think or thought of because of my own er erroneous ways of thinking, that God was just off and distant and mad at me, and I could not come close to him. And that defeats you further when you think that. But when I realized through Christ that he wants me close to him, he wants me to walk with him, that invites you to something. That's a lot different than a threat of you're going to get zapped if you don't do right. God with us means he knows everything that's happening. He knows what you're thinking, what you're dealing with, what you're battling with. He doesn't reject you because of Christ, so you can draw near or stay near to him in this light, and he'll help you wherever you are. He did so ultimately by the atonement, and he continues to do as you walk this life and you walk this path and this journey. It was Packer who said in Knowing God, God is Savior, active and sovereign love through the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue believers from the guilt and power of sin to adopt them as his sons, and to bless them accordingly. It's a very intimate, close thing to be speaking of God with us. It's not just that God is with us to identify. That's true. It's not just that he is with us so that he could be our atonement. He is with us consistently, constantly, and still in our daily lives. Jesus didn't leave his people when he ascended. He sent his spirit, and his presence is mediated by his spirit. His presence is also felt by his people. We're called the body of Christ. People who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit together make up the body of Christ. So one of the ways you experience God with us is by being with his people. It's a supernatural fellowship. Only God can work it. We are really different people with a lot of different interests and associations. But we have one thing in common. God has come near to us through Christ. And that alone makes us wipe out all sorts of barriers and boundaries between each other, and we can sense 
the presence of God among his people. This is why pastors always insist that the people of God not forsake the assembly of the saints together. It's not just for numbers or for offerings or just to say this many people come to church. It's not really that at all. It's because we know that the body of Christ is experienced in community with other Christians first and foremost. We're called to do many things outside of here, but we spend more of our time apart than we do together. So coming together reminds us of who we are in Christ and we sense the closeness of God through the body of Christ. That's something our daily lives need. In John 1, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, Christ it's speaking of, and the life was the light of men. It was the light of men, it says in John 1. But listen to John 1 verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, present tense, and the darkness has not overcome it. This speaks to Christ's dynamic, ongoing presence in the world and especially with his people. God with us is for our daily lives also. Christ continues to illuminate the way for us. He is close to us. He's not distant, and he's not looking at us with some peering eye or judgmental glance any longer if we're in him. People are always trying to capture who God is and how we are related to him. And I remember some 20-some years ago, in fact, more than that now, it had been, it was right when I got, got here, it was kind of a popular song. She tells you how long ago it was, um, by Joan Osborne. She wrote a song called What If God Was One of Us, and it always got me mad every time I hear the song. I'm not the best listener of music, because I like all styles, but when they say really dumb things philosophically, it's difficult for me. But I recognize that this is someone who doesn't know any better, has not had the revelation of God's Word or the Spirit work, at least at this point, in such a way as she would be able to answer some of these questions biblically. In fact, some of the lyrics show some of the baggage she, that she has and aren't really her fault. But listen to what she says and tell me if this doesn't resonate with, what, with how many people view God as distant and disconnected and doesn't understand us. She said, if God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face? If you were faced with him in all his glory. So this is a person who doesn't understand the scripture answers some of this, but she's naturally asking the questions. If God had a face, what, it would, what would it look like? And would you want to see it, she writes. If seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven, and in Jesus, and the saints, and all the prophets? What if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus, trying to make his way home, just trying to make his way home, like back up to heaven all alone? And now she kind of tips her hand as to where she's coming from, and I can understand it. Nobody calling on the phone, except for maybe the Pope in Rome. You know, she's just speaking what I think a lot of people think, that, you know, God just doesn't get us. He just doesn't understand us. He doesn't live like us. Joan and everybody, no, Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, gets all of this. He did, I'm not saying he was a slob like one of us in the way she may mean, but taking on the limitations of humanity for God in, in understanding loneliness, understanding disconnection, understanding being oppressed, just understanding all the things that we deal with. Yes, God has related to us in this, in the person of Christ. This is who makes all the difference. This is how we know God, is because we know Christ. In Colossians, verse 1, the mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory to this, of this mystery. What's the mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him, Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, 
that we may present everyone mature, complete, grown in Christ. The promised presence of God with his people. It's one of the most profound promises and realities revealed in the scripture. As a concept, as a theme of scripture, that God would be with us. It stands in stark opposition to every other world faith or philosophy. Our God personally with us. And this is what makes it powerful when Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, he says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And it's there on on your insert, verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He promises his everyday presence with his church, with his people. The picture that we have of this ultimate fulfillment in the book of Revelation chapter 21 And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Remember that language in the Old Testament? I will be your God, and you will be my people. In ultimate, final redemption, in ultimate glory, this will be fully realized. But in the meantime, Christ in us, the hope of glory, is God with us. A few weeks ago, I was talking to Andrew Zeller when he came and preached here, and he was talking of, uh, about the, the kind of students that are starting to go into graduate school, probably true for college students too, um, the generation that's you know, 16 up to 22 in that age group, maybe a little older. And it's, studies have said that that age group um, is identified as one of the loneliest age groups um, in this generation. That age group. I mean, there's social media, there's playing video games and talking to people while you're playing video games and your phones and you're texting all, but there's an impersonal aspect to these things that safeguards you from any depth of relationship with those things. And that's creating a bit of an epidemic in our culture. In fact, I started studying this and it's a wider spread thing than just the 16 to 24-year-olds. According to a recent article by Lisa Firestone, in the United States, loneliness is currently at epidemic levels. This is an article that's only two weeks old. A recent Cigna study of 20,000 U.S. adults found that nearly half of Americans feel like they are alone. Only slightly more than 50% of respondents said that they had meaningful in-person social interactions on a daily basis. And 50% said that they sometimes or always feel that their relationships are not meaningful and that they're isolated from others. A smaller but still surprising number of people, 20%, said that they never or rarely feel close to people, and 18% felt like they have had no one to talk to in recent days. There's no doubt that loneliness is on the rise, this author says, and it affects people of all ages. And then the author goes down and breaks down all the different age groups and really keys on that 16 to 24 age group. She says the most broadly accepted definition of loneliness is the distress that results from discrepancies between ideals and perceived social relationships. That's according to the Encyclopedia of Human Relationships. Seems like common sense. Lonely individuals are more likely to construe their world as threatening, hold more negative expectations, and interpret and respond to ambiguous social behavior in a more negative, off-putting fashion, thereby confirming their construal of the world as threatening and beyond their control. A lot to say that it messes us up when we feel alone. It starts to shape everything that we see in the world in a way that can be very warped. As believers who had the word of God, Christ in us, the hope of glory, we can suffer from loneliness. This would be a corrective for us to recognize God with us, to recognize how we ought to plumb the depths of that reality that Christ is with us. What we know to be true about God 
must be the thing we pursue and that will fight off whether it be loneliness or anger or sadness or depression or whatever it may be. The answer is found in the closeness that we have with our God through Christ. J.I. Packer, I'll close with this thought from him. When he's capturing the reason why the study of knowing God is so important for Christians, he says this, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through this life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. Packer is so right. Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, and this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am sure that there are those who feel disconnected from you, or distant, maybe even lonely. Maybe in the midst of a crisis that uh, makes them feel pulled away from you. Uh, there are stresses and strains that push and pull on us. There are matters that worry us and cause us great anxiety that make us feel disjointed from you in your presence. There are financial pressures. There are family worries. There are social influences, world events, things that intimidate us personally. As a church living in an environment that seems to be growing more hostile towards your biblical, your biblical instruction, please, O oh Lord, through this message of Emmanuel, God with us, through Christ, please strengthen our faith, our, our depth of love for Jesus, our recognition of his presence with us, your watch care over us, and your concern for every detail and stress of our lives. Strengthen our faith by the truths and the promises of your word. Please correct our feelings to be in line with what is true. Help us to pursue knowledge of you and to plumb the depths of what it means to be close to you and you close to us. In the midst of crisis or whatever it is we may be dealing with, give us a deeper faith and trust in you through Christ. Cause your spirit to enliven our sense of your being with us. And as we focus on this a bit during this Advent season, as we say Emmanuel quite a few times or sing it, help us, have us to rejoice because Emmanuel has come to us in all that means. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.